Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hey, Tom, how's it going? It's going well. Um, it is, it's kind of weird talking about, I, I talk about the weather all the time in Chicago because it's really weird in Chicago. It's also really strange to talk about it on these podcasts since like the distance between when we record and when it will go up is enough that like, it's gorgeous here today on the day this goes up. It could be hailing for all I know, but it is, it is beautiful in Chicago today. It is almost 80 degrees. It feels like an early summer. It's supposed to hail next week, but we're going to save that for, for next week. How are things with you? You're right. The weather is so fickle that whatever it is today, you know, could very well be the opposite tomorrow. It's nice here. It's about 80 here as well and sunny. Um, And it looks like extended, uh, we're going to stick in the 70s and low 80s for the foreseeable future. So summer's on its way, I guess. Very nice. Excellent. So we're going to talk about... um, Javier Moraes' novel, Berta Isla, today, and we're dedicating our entire episode to talk about this book. And we decided to do this because we want to dedicate an entire episode to Moraes' forthcoming novel, or forthcoming in the United States at least, novel Thomas Nevinson, which is in a lot of ways a counterpart um, to this novel. But there's a lot to say about Berta Isla. And uh, where do you think we should start, Tom? Um, dear God, I don't know. <laughs> there's so much to uh, there's so much to dig into with this one. Um, I guess maybe some some pretty straightforward scene setting would be would be useful. Um, so Berta Isla is the name of the uh, main character of the novel. I mean, in many regards, there are two protagonist to it though that's probably something that we'll we'll get to a little bit later about who's actually protagonist and who's not um but berta was born in i my math is correct like 1951 in madrid um and it's very much tracing her life and more specifically her life with um her boyfriend and partner from the time that she was about 13 or 14 um into her late forties, um, their life together. Um, but more specifically, very much their, their life apart as, um, uh, Tomas Nevinson, um, the young man in her life, uh, ends up spending more time away from her than with her in the course of their life together. Um, yeah, Tomas is, um, is her childhood sweetheart. And it's kind of interesting because Marais kind of focuses on the fact that um, early on she kind of made a decision that she was going to be Tomas's wife and that she was committing her life to him. Um, And she pretty much does that (laughs) through thick and thin and a a lot of of, um, agony, which we'll get into um, throughout the novel to the very end. And one of the things that kind of is notable about the relationship is as soon as Tomas goes to college, because he goes to Oxford, they start spending extended periods of time apart. They don't really um, 
even when they're young, kind of do that thing where, you know, your high school sweetheart is like, yeah, we're going to be together forever. And then you go to college and that's it. Like they, they are geographically separated, but they still, uh, stay very committed to each other and ultimately end up getting married. Right. And, and a quick note on, um, uh, Tomas is that he is both, um, English and Spanish. His father is English. Um, his mother is, uh, from Madrid. Um, they settle in Madrid, uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, but when, what sets Tomas apart, um, because then <laughs> Marius goes to some lengths to not say that he's not handsome. He is handsome, but that he's not, there isn't anything necessarily super striking about his features. It's more the, the composite of his features that makes him attractive on top of his Englishness that makes him um, stand out a bit, but he's perfectly bilingual and by perfectly he blends into whatever circumstance he wants to. He is a perfect mimic. He can pick up any language, um, which is what kind of triggers uh, a lot of what takes place in their adult life. Uh, that, um, yeah, there's something really notable about his facility with language and his facility with accent and his way that the way in which he can move back and forth and in between. Um, which well, I think also, sorry, which also I think ties into um, their commitment to one another. I mean, it in some, it, it's very much a commitment on Berta's part. I don't think it's inertia on Tomas's. I mean, I, he certainly loves her, but there is also isn't a level of self-reflection of now's the time to be apart. Like th that, that thought never seems to occur to him, um, which is interesting. Well, when you're talking of Thomas's features, uh, the one thing that everyone seems to pick up on, including Berta, is his lips. Apparently, this guy's got great lips. Um, it's kind of hard to to maybe visualize that, but um, but he's he's absolutely charming, and he's kind of like a real get in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, all the girls kind of want to be his gal, and. Um, I think part of that is because he's really funny and it goes to this linguistic like genius that he has that um, he does these awesome imitations and he can imitate anyone because not only is he uh, proficient in the, in the languages, but also in the accents and the dialects. And so he kind of busts his classmates up all the time by doing these really great impressions of people. But another thing that you mentioned, and this is kind of repeated throughout the book, is that he's a person that, at least according to Berta, is almost completely devoid of self-reflection. Like he mm -hmm. doesn't really um, ponder who he is or what he's doing or where he's going. I get the sense that he's just kind of this... Um, lucky go happy guy that seems to um pretty much always kind of come out ahead you know he's he's very smart he's got a loving family he gets the girl um but all that kind of changes during his tenure at oxford yeah and i mean i think that i absolutely agree with all that and i also think that um 
that's reflected in his choices of study. I mean, he studies language, um, which is what brings him to the attention of Peter Wheeler. Um, it's a, it's one of the fun things about this novel is that you get to encounter characters that you may have thought were in the past and in previous books. Um, but yeah, um, it's, so he goes, he, he has a gift for language. He has a, literally a genius for language. Um, and so that's what he does uh, when he when he studies, when he goes to school. Um, and it's not clear what he's going to do next. In many ways, I don't think he has any idea what he would do after graduation because life has just sort of come to him and been the way that it needs to be. Um, again, this is going back to the idea of like who who is or is not a protagonist in a story. Um in, in other of Marius's novels, um, Thomas Nevinson would have been a character that we encountered for maybe a chapter, um, notable for what he was, but not terribly notable otherwise, and then disappeared into the background. And you know what? Given what Thomas ends up doing with his life, maybe we have encountered Thomas in some yeah. of the other novels. Um, but part of, part of Tomas's kind of... Um maybe a uh, laissez-faire attitude towards his future is because I think he kind of understands that Birch is committed to him for life. And then there's also this implication, you know, his, his dad's a Brit and, and is closely affiliated with the British embassy in Madrid. And there's this, I think it's a family friend rather than a distant relative, but this guy named Starkey, who's, who is very well placed in the embassy and with, with Tomas's English education, I think the presumption is, is that he's going to graduate and go back to Madrid and work for the British embassy in Madrid. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be the clear implication. Um, but I mean, I, so I guess we should kind of dive into what happens to Tomas in his last year um, at Oxford. Um, so these are, so I guess it's quickly to say, um, as two young people coming up in the late 60s and the social and political tumult of that time, um, both Berta and Tomas have their first sexual experiences with people other than their partner. Um, they both know that this is what took place. Neither one of them really especially cares. But um, Tomas in particular, have been carrying, not even carrying on with, just having a physical relationship with a young woman who worked at a bookshop, once again, Oxford bookshops making their appearance, an antiquarian one at that. Um, to back up for just a moment, um, Thomas Evanson is a, a mentee of Peter Wheeler. Um, Peter Wheeler is, uh, <laughs> we will spend a lot of time with him um, in your face tomorrow. Um, but he is a he's well regarded within this the faculty a legend frankly he's also a legend within the town for what he did before he was at uh teaching at oxford um and that was that he was a spy of some sort whether he was actually in the field whether he was simply an interpreter the suggestion is that he was in the field um there is an air of mystery to him um and keep in mind that this is in the what the late 60s early 70s at this point and most of the action that Wheeler would have seen was in World War II, there's enough distance for it to take on the the tone of myth and legend. And there's the suggestion within the town uh, and the rumor mill that he still is connected to the Secret Service. One day, um, Tomas is over at Wheeler's, um, I think he's at his house, not in his offices, uh, if I remember correctly. 
And um, Wheeler would ask Tomas to look over his papers that he'd written in Spanish, just because he respected Tomas's ability and fluency to move between the two languages so well. Um, and Wheeler, at first, very obliquely, and Tom- Tomas is not picking up what Wheeler is laying down, but Wheeler is trying to recruit him um, into the British Secret Service, saying that, I mean, eventually he has to come out and be very plain about what he's saying. Tomas is a genius. He, he is a perfect mimic, as we've discussed. He has a facility with languages, with dialect, with accent. Um, his skills would be incredibly useful. Um, and there and- is, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there's one thing in this speech that Wheeler gives to Tomas at the time that is a recurring theme or recurring memory for Tomas, because at one point Wheeler talks about how in consequential 99.9% of, um, of human endeavor is. And most people live their lives as quote, outcasts of the universe or outcasts in the universe. And he sees that Tomas has the capability to be something greater than that and to not just be an outcast, but to be in the secret service and actually help in some way um, kind of change the course of events. Yeah. To, to influence and shape, to be, uh, to be someone versus nobody. And that's uh, kind of a, a, a specific phrasing that keeps coming up a- across multiple characters, especially as they discuss the kind of work that, that Tomas ends up doing. But at the moment, Tomas rejects Wheeler's offer. He just doesn't, he doesn't see himself as that. And this, again, goes back to the whole lack of self-reflection. Um, these, I mean, in, in some ways, Tomas is almost like, at least at that point in his life, what is directly in front of you is what he is. The, the past, the future, none of that really factors into, into his awareness of himself. It's merely the moment, the, the moment by moment, um, which is ironic because that's how he describes his work later. Um, so after this meeting with Wheeler, um, he visits uh, the woman that he's been having, you know, having sex with. Um, they have an encounter. He leaves that night. And she had implied to him that um, he knew that she had a um, lover in London that she would see in the weekends that she was invested in. I mean, this was just a physical relationship for the for the both of them. And um, the lover is a somebody with a capital S. Yes. Yes. And this is the first time we, I believe we see the somebody with a capital S, though it's not the last. Um, and by that, I mean the actual word somebody with a capital S. Um, and in this, in the conversation, and they, it's implied they don't usually converse that much. In the conversation after they have sex, um, she says that she's basically laid out an ultimatum for this person. Um that she's not happy with things as they continue uh, as they are and wants them to change. And it's up to him and that she could have vengeance upon him if he, she still wanted. So Tomas leaves. Um, he's in a different sort of mood, mostly because of his conversation with Wheeler. He stands outside of her apartment for a bit and sees a man go in, but doesn't notice any change in the lights in her apartment. And then he walks home. Um, he is a few days later or a couple days later. Um, interrogated by a police inspector um, about the murder of this woman, Janet. And this actually takes place in front of Eric Southworth. So again, another callback, um, (laughs) which 
I don't know. I feel like Maurice is just, I can't tell if it's like sentimentality that's causing this, uh, a desire to like more carefully tie the threads of his universe, his written universe together. Um, but I enjoyed seeing Southworth and, and Wheeler again. And and South, Southworth, just to be clear, also is an Oxford professor and he's tutoring Tomas. And it's at Correct. the conclusion of one of these tutoring sessions that uh, Officer Morse shows up at the door and says, uh, you know, are you Thomas Nevinson? I need to speak to you. And um, Southworth, you know, offers to leave and Tomas says, no, you know, you can stay. And then Morse begins to question Tomas about his relationship with this woman and when he last saw her and what they were doing. And so Southworth hears all of all of this conversation and the accusations. Well, maybe accusations too rough of a word, but um, the implication that perhaps Tomas was the last person to see her alive. Right. Um, and also a, a quick note, the inclusion of an Inspector Morse into this novel is... <laughs> absolutely delightful later on we find that uh, morse's first name is enfield not endeavor so it is not the inspector morse but it may as well be um i think that might just been a copyright uh dodge right there but um this is this is actually one of the novels i think is almost it's lousy with literary allusions and and mentions um they they happen in all of marius's novels but i feel like this one there, there's just a, there's just more of it, or it's maybe more accurately, it's more bald. Like it's direct, continuous, direct quotations and continuous reflection and um, recursion of those lines from other works um, making their appearance. Yeah, I um, feel like I feel like Shakespeare comes up somehow in almost all of the novels, but this one features Dickens, T.S. Eliot. Herman Melville, and you know, on and on. There's, there. You're absolutely right. I think this one might be packed with more literary allusions than any other, and 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 such a wider range of them. Usually, it is just like the the one Shakespeare quote that like continues to like work as a light motif throughout the work. This one is just which or, or not even a light motif. Um, Thus, bad begins. I mean, that's right. the title of a novel. So right. Um. So Tomas um, answers all these this inspector's questions. Um, Southworth thinks entirely too openly. Um, Southworth even advised him to get a lawyer um, at one point, but he just wants to clear the air because he knows he didn't do it. Um, and it somewhat becomes clear to him that he might be in some serious trouble here. Um, he reaches out to Wheeler, who then tells him to go to a shop on a certain day at a certain time and go to a certain section and someone will meet him who uh, may be able to help him get out of this mess, um, which he does. Uh, I, I just want to quickly note, um, Wheeler sends him to um, the T.S. Eliot section of the bookstore, or at least in, in the poetry section. And the, the person will, he should pick up a book by Eliot and the other person will also pick up a book by Eliot. Um, and I, the number of not quite English Englishmen in this novel is, is really quite interesting. You've got Eliot, you've got um, Tomas. Um, Wheeler himself is originally from New Zealand. Um, but all these people get drawn into this orbit of defending Britishness and defending the empire and defending the realm. Um, I mean, you've even got um, the last time that um, 
that Tomas sees Janet, she's reading The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad, another not quite English Englishman. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I found that quite amusing and, and kind of a, a delightful moment um, throughout it. Um, so, yeah, Tomas meets with uh, two men, um, one named Tupra, um, and he is recruited into the service. Basically, they say um, he's pretty well screwed. The, the person that he thinks he may have seen go in um, may well be this woman's lover who's an MP, a uh, minister of parliament, um, and nothing t- ties that person. That person has an alibi. Nothing ties that person to the murder. The only person that there is is Tomas. And when it's an open and shut or looks open and shut, the state's going to do what it does and his life is over. Or he could apply his considerable gifts and work come work for them. Um, and he chooses the latter. Yeah, and they don't really give him any time to de- deliberate. You know, no. it's just kind of like, um, you know, you, you've got to you've got to decide right now. We can make this all go away, but um, but you know, you you can't let us know tomorrow. You know, you need to decide right now. And it's it's a it's a kind of a crazy ask for you know a twenty one year old guy. Um, but I think I think Tomas at this point is sufficiently scared um, that he's going to go to jail that he doesn't really see any other way, but to, um, but to let himself be, be recruited and become part of the secret service. Um, And it's interesting in that, I mean, we'll dive into this a lot in um, your face tomorrow, but uh, Tupra and Maria's is, um, I never know how to pronounce the word oeuvre. Ouvre, what, how are you well, say that silly? Yeah, word. exactly. With like way too many vowels. Ouvre, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and Maria says body of work. We'll just stick with that. It's longer, but it's less of a tongue twister. Um, Tupra is a major character in uh, Your Face Tomorrow. Um, matters quite a bit. Um, something of a spy master. But one of the things that Tupra is good at and that Wheeler is good at um, is seeing through people, like being able to just. Dis- discern truth from fiction, um, kind of know immediately who someone is and what their relationships are and all of those things. Um, Tomas is an amazing mimic, amazing to, and in his work, he's apparently uses an infiltrator as any number of things, a a bit of an analyst, but um, he doesn't always see through people that well. At least that's not my impression. He's much better at becoming others than um, discerning others, which in some ways I think is a reflection of his talents, of his way of being in the world, his constant presentness. Um, Not that he's not right. I mean, there are long digressions of his thought process and the things that he's pulling in and all that. and not that long for Marius, but long for almost any other writer, most likely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think that's worth mentioning um, because this novel is doing is about to do something after this section. After Tomas signs on, um, the novel does something very strange. Up to this point, it'd been more or less written in a like third person, omniscient, near omniscient approach. Um, the very next section switches to the eye and the eye is Berta and Berta seems to see people in a yes. way that Tomas does not. Um, and, and that, I, 
that juxtaposition, I think, is really kind of fascinating, something that I think that we can dig into a bit. Yeah, I mean, she sees, you know, she and she and Tomas have been living apart for a while um, because he's studying for six or eight weeks during the term and coming home during the break and then going back to Oxford. But um, when he graduates from Oxford and Oxford and comes back to Madrid, she notices right away that something is different about him, that he's, he's a little more sullen and he's not as happy-go-lucky and he seems preoccupied and she doesn't really know um, why that is. And she tries to, you know, gently ask him about it. Um, and even though he's very opaque about it, nonetheless, they still proceed with getting married as they had planned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he starts um, soon thereafter having to go to London, so to speak, for various periods of time, um, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. Um, and then eventually he lets it be known that, well, he can't call her sometimes while he's, he's away because not always is it London, but he's at places that he's not at liberty to disclose to her. And so this whole kind of, um, other life that he's leading kind of emerges and almost supersedes um, the the life of the person that she she married or she thought that she was married marrying a guy that you know was going to be a good husband and a good um, a good father to their children and someone that she you know would spend her life with um, because he ends up spending more and more time away from her. Right. Um, so when he came back, he took a job at the uh, British Embassy. Um, initially, these trips back to London were described as meetings or additional trainings. There's a suggestion that he was seen as having a bright future. So they're training him in all sorts like managerial courses, which don't necessarily fit, as she notes, with you know what his actual job is. But maybe they're maybe they're looking. They think he'll advance. He'll be able to do almost anything. He's so so gifted and all that, which you know, fits with her picture of him. I mean, he is brilliant he, and he is engaging and he is the center of any party. Um, uh, so th- they, they're married. Uh, they have a child, Guillermo. Um, and during one of the periods where Tomas is gone, um, she is at a park, uh, Bert is at a park with Guillermo and this couple approach her and say that, uh, they actually met an embassy party. They're stationed with the Irish embassy. Um, that that's how they know Tomas. And then they imply they may have briefly met Berta too, but at these functions, everyone meets everyone. So it's totally reasonable that she doesn't remember them. Um, and over the course of a month while Tomas is gone, they slowly, but surely spend more and more time around her and with her. Um, and at the end of this month, they visit her at her house and say that uh, they're being relocated. Uh, they're not quite sure where, but they need to talk to her about Tomas. And then they ask her, do you know what your husband really does? Do you know what he really is? Which, of course, stuns her. Um, and they start putting the question to her of, why is he gone all the time? What is it that he actually does at this embassy? What is he doing when he's away? And they pretty much out and out say that um, 
Her husband works for MI6, um, military intelligence for uh, the British government, that he is a spy and that he may be up to no good in Northern Ireland. I neglected, I mean, I mentioned they were from the Irish embassy, um, but, um, and that he needs to really stop what he's doing or there might be some consequences. And the course of the conversation, the um, husband in this couple accidentally, I'm making scare quotes that no one can see as they listen to the podcast, um, accidentally spills some of uh, the fluid for his Zippo lighter onto uh, Guillermo uh, sleep in his crib uh, with the implication very, very clear of what what would, what would happen if uh, Tomas did not stop doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, they eventually leave, and this, of course, sends Berta into an absolute panic. Uh, she tries to reach Tomas. She's not able to. Uh, they, the people that she, that she reaches at the switchboard say that he uh, can't be reached for some time. She starts going through all the names of different people that he's mentioned over the years. Um, eventually hits upon one that brings her to Tupra, though under a different name that, and she doesn't even realize it's a different name um, some time later. Um, and basically, when Tomas eventually does come back, he's gone for, I think, an additional few weeks, possibly a month after that incident. Um, he is, per- he is He says that he is permitted to tell her some of what's going on, but can't give too much away. And in so doing, confirms to her that, yes, he he is engaging in espionage. He is not in London or anywhere near London most of the time, or maybe he is. She doesn't know, but when he's gone, he's not just on business. He is gone. He is no longer there. And I think it's important to note that um, he doesn't disclose to her the ultimatum that was that was presented to him. She doesn't know, and she's in, in fact confused as to mm-hmm. why why in the world would he agree to serve the British government. Um, and in such a way that he would endanger his life, uh, her life, the children's lives, and and really um, consign himself to a career of being mostly absent from their lives. Yeah, and this, I mean, this section I feel like kicks off. I feel like the middle section of this novel is almost a, a long discussion of state power. I mean, there there is so much of that. What is the role of the individual within a society? How does a society function? What is war? What isn't war? Um, which come out in these conversations over the years between Berta and um, Tomas. Um, but why is he doing what he's doing? She, I mean, like you said, she puts it to him. You're you're not. English. You're English and Spanish. You grew up in Madrid. Sure, you went to Oxford, but why this? Why are you suddenly this patriot? Um, Which is what he becomes, or at least what he presents himself as over time. As their arguments progress, he starts to talk about the realm, realm with a capital R, and the need to defend it. Um, How how it is it is both his duty and his privilege to um, be able to, in some small way, uh, guarantee society's functioning. And you have no idea the things that I'm fighting against, um, even getting to the point of referring to the people that he's against as utter bastards, which stuns her with the vehemence with which he says it. Yeah, he goes into this long soliloquy about how, um, you know, People like you, Berta, and and everyone, um, you don't think about 
what's happening or what has to happen so that you can live this relatively blissful life and be safe and go about your day and and shop and walk and do your teaching, which Berta does some university teaching in Madrid and and have have dinner with your friends. And there's this whole underbelly that you're not seeing of people that have to um, really fight enemies in order to make it safe for you and for everyone else. And he starts very much using us and we when he's talking about the British government. And she she definitely sees a change in him in, in becoming this kind of British uber patriot. But it seems to me that Moraes was kind of drawing us into the fact that in a lot of ways, Tomas is trying to justify yes. this, this, uh, I don't know that Moraes ever uses this word in this whole novel, but I think an immoral career. Um, and I think that Tomas in a lot of ways, deep down does think that what he's doing is not, is, is immoral. And I think that he's trying to like convince himself a little bit uh, with this patriotism and these like, you know, the world would go kaput if there weren't people like me doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, and I think in their, in their first conversation around this, the answers seem a little bit more pat, like a little bit more like he's just trying to mollify her a bit. He's explaining it to a certain degree. Um, it's as as their lives continue and as he disappears more and more and for longer and longer and clearly is doing more and more that he becomes more vehement. And in some ways, and she, she talks about this, that he's doing these things that he can't boast of, even though he takes great pride in them, that he's able to do these things that no one else can do. So he gets these tiny moments of boastfulness with his wife that he then has to pull back from. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is, I think it starts as a justification. I think it, becomes more and more his personality as it moves along in no small part because it's probably what's keeping him sane is the idea that like there is a greater reason for this than just than just whatever the political climate is at the moment which interestingly is something that Berta pushes him on constantly like do you think you've worked for how many prime ministers now do you think the prime minister actually knows what's going on do you think that they really care their politics are different um at one point and once Thatcher takes over, she she takes some pretty serious shots at Thatcher. I mean, from my opinion, well deserved. But um, yeah, I, there, there's a moment, and I think there's second or third longer conversation um, where she compares him to the Spanish secret police um, that would infiltrate P and. Out, she outright says um, these were peaceful organizations that these groups that these this part of the secret police wanted to push towards violent, wanted to push away from peace in order to arrest them, in order to undermine them, in order to bolster this corrupt state that both she and Tomas agreed that the, you know, the Francoist regime was corrupt, was wrong. Um, and he absolutely loses it on that point and brings up the history of the British and, you know, all, all these justifications for what he's doing. And after he, or midway through, there's a moment where, again, this is, this is all being 
told from Berta's perspective, where we go inside her head and she goes, that's just what it is. Anyone can justify anything depending upon their point of view. Um, well, and, and I wanted to just make one note about your point that he he kind of um, boasts to her about how important what he's doing, although he can't describe what he's doing, is. And um, the point's made that that she's really the only one that he can boast to um, because even though she knows very little about what he does, um, she knows more than anyone else because for Mm -hmm. everyone else in their world, including Tomas's parents, um, you know, he's, he's in the diplomatic core, you know, he's, he's a, he's a diplomat and he's going around, you know, negotiating sensitive things um, and there's a, there's a point where she realizes that she's become complicit in his secrets, mm-hmm. that she's, she's now kind of muddied her hands because she's, she's going along with the lies and lying to Tomas's parents about where he is and what he's doing and about his ability to communicate with her. They ask, you know, have you heard from Tomas lately? Oh yeah. He called me yesterday and you know, he said, you know, is he's here and the talks are continuing and you know, he hopes to be home soon or, you know, whatever. And it's, it again goes to this whole, I think if you had to, if you had to kind of think of three kind of overarching themes that seem to cover all of Moraes's novels, secrets would have to be one of those three things. Absolutely. And again, it's this, it's the secret and keeping secrets and what that does to your, um, to your psyche and what that does to the psyche of the people around you and that you work with and who you love. Yeah. It, it's working out very nicely that we're talking about this one, um, the episode after talking about a heart so white and the secrets that um, I remember that his name is Juan. I mean, we still refer to him as the the narrator. <laughs> um, uh, the narrator's father was keeping and what it does. And it's also interesting that after the first conversation where um, Tomas levels a bit, not very much, but a bit with Berta, um, she says that he's much better. Um, when he's back in Madrid after that, um, that when he comes home from these long periods away, he's distracted and sullen and seems out of sorts in a way. Um, but that after a few days, he's very much like like himself again. Like she is getting back the man that she fell in love with, the man that she thought she was marrying, the man that she thought she was going to spend her life with based off of their, their life together and as a couple um, prior to his last term in his last year um, at Oxford and, you know, what took place then, um, which is awesome. I mean, which again goes back to the secrets, right? He unburdened himself enough that he could relax a bit with his wife. Um, he could feel like he could maybe let something slide ever so slightly and then clam back up, but he didn't have to always be on high alert that what he would say would give away the game and, and so on and so on. But um, it's a, it's a very schizophrenic life for him um, mm-hmm. because, you know, he's, he's, becoming all of these different personas depending on what the mission is and where he's based. And he takes different names wherever he's, he's located and, and whatever kind of task he's been set to. Um, 
he obviously changes his appearance. There's numerous yep. times where, you know, we note that, oh, le- when he left last time, he had a scar. Now he no longer has a scar because he had plastic surgery. Um, his hair is lighter. It's dyed. He has a beard. He doesn't have a beard. You know, all of these different um, kind of split personalities that he has to, that he has to assume. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is a good moment to talk about um, protagonist or not. Um, Cause in many respects, the, the pitch that we were put to him um, that Tupra put to Nevinson um, was this idea of being someone in the world, someone that matters, maybe no, not someone that anyone ever knows about, but you will know the secret history, the secret shaping of the reality that everyone else lives in. In many ways, you know, making you into a writer or a narrator uh, uh, of the world in which everyone else exists. But um, in the structure of the novel, I mean, we get into Tomas's head, but we're never direct, we're never addressed as a reader by Tomas. We are by Berta. Berta is talking to us all the time in this in this novel. Um, and what's more, I mean, Tomas in constantly changing his appearance and constantly changing his identity um, in fr- frankly being like dropped into these situations, but being controlled by someone else. I mean, he might be shaping things by his actions, but he's not in control of his life. He's not in control of much of anything um, at that point. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's really a question in some ways that uh, that Marius is putting to the reader. Like, who it, the novel's called Berta. Um, Berta Isla. It she is talking to us all the time. Um, and Tomas is gone for most of the book, and yet he would claim that he is one of the creators of this world in which Berta gets to live. Um, I, know, I think that's. I think that's a really interesting. I think it's a really interesting uh, conversation that um, Marius is is trying to start in that regard. Yeah, he really has um, very little agency. I mean, he's he's at their whim. I mean, whether he gets to stay in Madrid for six months or or six hours, you know, it's where wherever they need him and whenever they need him and under whatever circumstances he's got to be there. And um, when you were talking just now about that and about, about the kind of um, situation that Thomas is in and, and what the book sets up, this, this novel, Berta Isla, could almost be called Your Face Tomorrow as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's this theme again that... Um, that no one, you know, you think that you know someone, but you really don't know if the circumstances are tough enough or change in certain ways, what kind of person they will really prove themselves to be. And, um, I mean, and of course, Thomas's face is changing all the time, literally. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's, um, it it is a really interesting thing that that kind of I don't know I'm getting more and more I guess into this maze of thinking all of these novels really talk to each other um, in yeah. different ways. 
I mean, I, I was even thinking on this read through, like, I mean, Marius's novels are often driven by some sort of like, moral quandary, right? That uh, the main character, the, the, the narrator functionally um, is facing. I mean, um, tomorrow on the battle is the death of this woman. And what are, what, what are my responsibilities in the media? And what are my responsibilities after the fact? Um, a heart so white in some respects is, I mean, it's, it's about what you owe to, uh, to someone else. Um, this is, but these are all in the very, in the very private lives of individuals. This is on the very, like very interpersonal small scale level um this one is diving into something much bigger much broader i mean it's taking place from um franco is spain um into the 80s into the 90s uh it touches on the ira on on etta um it deals with thatcher it deals with the falkland wars but it all does that within the context of this this couple, this family, um, and the secrets they're keeping, the impacts they're having. I mean, it occurred to me to call this like a proof of concept. Like when you expand it outside of the personal, what, what do you owe to the other? And what do you look like the next day? Um, your face tomorrow, I mean, even takes place under a much tighter, time frame than what this novel is doing. Um, so the idea that someone might be unrecognizable the next day is a really interesting thought experiment and we can go down all these digressions, but we're talking about like Tomas being gone for literally months at a time and coming back looking completely different until we get to the point where the Falkland Wars kicks off, he leaves and he's gone and not just gone for a period of time. He is very, very much gone. Yeah. He's like totally off the grid in even to the extent that at least the secret service and Tupra claim that they've, they've, they've lost his signal. They, they don't, they don't know where he is. And when, when it's going on like, um, 18 months that he's been gone, Berta starts calling Tupra and saying, you know, I know that, that, I'm not supposed to be calling you. I know that you might not be able to tell me very much, but you know, it, did he go to the Falklands? I mean, where, where is he? What, you know, and, and at first Tupra just kind of, um, you know, was like, Oh, you know, I can't really talk, but you know, he'll be back. Don't worry. But then as the years and it becomes 12 years mount, um, even Tupra is forced to come to Madrid and, and tell Berta, listen, um, we don't know whether he's dead or what, but, yeah. um, we've, you know, we've lost contact with him and, um, and Tupra, <laughs> Tupra being such a sensitive guy starts, um, reciting British and Spanish law to her about like when someone can be deemed dead and, and when she could be a widow and remarried and when she's eligible for, <laughs> for Tomas's uh, pension benefits and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, for, for much of the novel, she assumes that, um, that he very well might be dead. And what we keep reading about very much is this, almost ambivalence that Berta has about waiting. Um, 
She hates the she hates waiting. She hates like expecting every time the phone rings that it might be news of him or looking out of her balcony um at the park across the way and like looking at all of the people walking and you know using her binoculars and it could that be him is that him is he coming back um but yeah it's it's this waiting that she does but she almost she almost thinks that maybe the waiting is better than the truth yeah and there's also an interesting um comment that she makes about how she refers to herself as um how does she put it a um a, a young woman and then an um or you know a a young adult and then an older woman um, referring to her physical appearance and how in a way it feels like her body is refusing to change from the time when Tomas uh, saw it last, um, which is kind of a, again, that's an interesting counterpoint to Tomas's constantly changing appearances and shifting lives and, you know, <laughs> what languages or accents is he, um, is he living in? Um yeah, it's he goes through. I mean, there's a scene when they're having an argument um, before his disappearance, um, where he keeps changing his accent um, on her. Where he starts adopt. At one point, he adopts an American accent. Um, I Walter Brennan, I think, is the name of the actor that she refers to, like a background actor in westerns. Um, and it really starts to freak her out to the point where she tells him to stop. And then when he does stop he adopts almost a Cockney accent and he's just, he, they're having this serious conversation about what it is he does and what, and how that interacts with the world. Um, and he's doing it in voices and voices that are not, not his, but obviously are because he's the one speaking them. Um, I don't, I couldn't tell in that moment if he was just trying to be cruel um, or if he thought it was funny or if he were, you know, funny in that, in this, I mean, it's certainly, a, there was certainly a cruelty to what was taking place there, but the point he was trying to make, I'm not even sure he knew. Um, I, I just felt like his sense of self outside of his arguments for defense of the realm was so lacking that um, it was just as easy to sound like someone else and almost assume that a personality as it was to be, you know, the Tomas Nevinson that, that she's always known. Yeah. I felt that he kind of reverted to this skill that he has and uses a lot for his career because he didn't like what she was saying and he felt threatened by it. Mm -hmm. um, and so he just kind of reacts and, and acts out in, in that way. But that would be really freaky if the person you were married to just started talking, <laughs> talking yeah. in some weird accent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, I, I'm trying, I was even just trying to process like what that would be like, especially in the midst of an argument that would be, um, <laughs> discomforting to, to put it mildly. Um, all right, so but like back to the action of, uh, that we're, or at least the point we're at in in the novel. Um, so Tomas has, has disappeared. Um, he, like I said, he um, leaves right at the start of the Falkland War. Um, it's not clear that that's where he was sent, though. That is what is used as the um, pretext for declaring him dead. Um, and again, Tupra goes into all the the legalisms as to why that's the most convenient. 
But at the same time, he's not confirming that he was in the Falklands um, or anywhere near Argentina. Um, we never really, we never really know where he is. There is obviously that suggestion from the Irish couple or Irish Spanish couple that he might be in Northern Ireland doing some work, but that's never confirmed. And Tomas sort of suggests that they were confused as to who it was, that it was someone else actually. Um, but so he's gone and um, Berta is trying, I mean, is making a life, something of a life for herself, raising the kids. Um, she does have a few lovers over time, but no one that sticks around. She's not especially interested in them sticking around either. Um, what do you make of the fact that she becomes quite close to Tomas's father? Yes. In this period. And this, I... I think that I mentioned it when we were getting ready for the show that I don't ever recall in a novel where the mother-in-law becomes a central figure in these books, but the father-in-law very often does. Yes. Um, Which is also kind of, it's interesting, right? Because Marius never married um, and his father outlived his mother, which is often the case for his characters. Um, but it's not like Marius had a wife that would have grown close to Julian, his father. Um, doesn't mean he didn't have partners over time, but it, it is kind of an interesting exploration there, isn't it? Um, but yeah, Berta becomes close with uh, Jack, Tomas's um, British father. Um, and they, it seems that there was always a perfectly cordial, you know, in-law relationship, but um she reaches out to Jack after Tomas is gone for about eight or nine months um, after the Falkland War kicks off and comes to an end and Tomas is still not returned. And she basically is trying to ask him what he knows, like outright asks him what he knows about his son's life. And they there's a brief feeling out period, but Jack lets on the fact that, yeah, he's a pretty good idea of what his son has been doing, that he he recognized the absences. He recognized how he came back. He remembers men he knew from um, World War II. Um, and he tells Berta that she needs to wait as long as possible before reaching out to the numbers that she has, because sometimes these things take years. And that seems to be the um seed for their for their their deepening relationship um that they are able suddenly there's another person that they both can somewhat talk to about this important person in their lives who tells them absolutely nothing about what that what most of their time is spent doing and notably um and I found this particularly painful um Tomas's mother dies mm-hmm. um and he, you know, he doesn't show up. There's no, there's no response whatsoever. I mean, that, that seems to almost kind of weigh in this, in this kind of deliberative thing that Bert is always doing. Is he dead? Is he alive? You know, that, wow. You know, the, even though they put ads in, in all of the newspapers about, you know, her obituary and her death, that there was no response whatsoever. Um, from him, and he certainly didn't come back to Madrid for the funeral. Um, but I think that, that that also kind of tightens the bond between Berta and Jack because um, now she's kind of um, Tomas's siblings um, all live outside of Madrid. So she kind of becomes Jack's 
caretaker in a way. Right. And both her parents died, I believe, in the novel, like within an 11-month period. Both her parents and Mercedes, Jack's wife, die. So, I mean, she even refers to herself as this uh, widowed, orphaned woman, you know, raising orphaned children. Um, she and Jack have lunch together every Sunday, and she calls him every day. Um, one of the things I love about Berta is... She can go on these really interesting ruminations um, and digressions, but she can also be so incredibly blunt. And she says that she calls him every day um, to make sure he's still alive. Right. Like, you know, if, if she doesn't get him, he has an answering machine and uh, she asks him to call call her back. Um, she wants to check in every single day that he woke up that day, um, which, again, when you think of like tomorrow and the battle and that discrepancy in time um, where uh, the husband didn't know that his wife was dead and what that could mean for his future and all that. Um, yeah. Marius is playing with a lot of the same. I think I absolutely think that his books are in conversation with each other. I think this one might be even more obliquely talking to some of the themes and some of the ideas in the previous books than some of his other books have done in the past. Um, that's my feeling anyway. Um, well, should we tell, um, the listeners what happens to Tomas? Uh, sure. Because I think we both agree that this section of the novel is, uh, freaking weird and kind of throws the whole thing off kilter. So yeah, please, please proceed, Lori. Well, after 12 years, um, Tomas reappears in Madrid and, and comes home to Berta. But before he does that, we learn that he goes back to Oxford and he uh, drops in on his old tutor, uh, Professor Southworth, and he, um, he asks him a very pointed question. And, and that has to do with the whole process of trying to recruit uh, Tomas and and actually uh, successfully recruiting him over the murder of Janet Jeffries, um, his long ago, twenty years ago, um, kind of um, uh, occasional bedmate, um, and that weird murder that happened that um, that made him so fearful that he was going to be arrested and put in prison and, and why he actually um, went to the secret service. But he starts, he starts asking um, his old tutor some really kind of hard questions. It's nine o'clock in the morning. He quickly drinks three glasses of white wine. I, you know, the, the professor is rather um, at first, I think kind of like taken aback, like, like this guy has changed so much what what's become of him. He's so like cynical and, and, um, and almost angry. And at one point he even like, he grabs Stockworth by the lapels, mm -hmm. um, and, and demands to know, uh, what Wheeler knew about the murder of Janet Jeffries. And I guess it's important to, to talk about, um, what happened even before that that visit to Oxford and what precipitated um, uh, Thomas really resigning from the Secret Service. And, and that is he he believes that he's got good reason to 
think that Janet Jeffries really wasn't murdered at all, that it was just a ruse to um, to get him into the Secret Service, that they it was used as a recruitment tool to kind of put the fear of God in him, give him an ultimatum, say, you're going to prison, except we've got one way out for you, buddy, and you've got to come with us and you've got to sign up. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of gets into this, this weird discussion with Stockworth and, and what I really kept reading, um, cause I forgot kind of exactly what happens in this part when I read Berta Isla years ago was, um, well, does, does he go confront Wheeler? Um, alas, he doesn't in this book, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a, a tense scene. And you and I talked a little bit um, Tom about the, the kind of, um, incongruous way that Tomas learns about, uh, what he thinks is what really happened to Janet Jeffries. Yeah. Um, so Tomas has spent the last 12 years living in basically the English countryside in a small town. Uh, he's been a school teacher. Um, he was basically being hidden away. Um, and, and so he couldn't even teach Spanish. He had to teach like geography and history. And he's recounting this to Southworth and, uh, and it comes across as sort of the absurdity of it. This, this brilliant man, uh, when it comes to languages who isn't even like, as he's being hidden, allowed to exercise his gifts, um, lest that give away who he is to some passerby or someone looking for him. Um, and in the process of doing so, he actually enters into another, under a relationship and fathers another child. Um, but at the end of that 12 years, he is told that he can come back in from the cold, as it were, um, that he can go home if he wants to, um, which is obviously a, a shock to his partner. Um, he basically absconds after when both she and their daughter are out of the house, um, goes back to London and is basically like put up again, put on ice. Like there, there some things to be figured out before he can go back home. And so he's just traveling around London and he goes to Madame Tussauds. And while in Madame Tussauds, he, which is a wax museum with famous people represented, he sees these two kids that are there on their own. And initially he's kind of doing the math and figuring out that, it's not quite that he thinks that they're Guillermo and Eliza, his kids with Berta, but they're probably about the same age and it's hard to tell. But something about the little girl is really bothering him. And then he realizes that she is the spitting image of Janet Jeffries, which starts cause some other tumblers in his head to fall into place. And he talk, starts talking to the kids and starts playing a game about being able to guess where they're from. And if he can guess, you know, guess things, he'll buy them something, which is a little weird and creepy, but it is what, <laughs> it, 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 is what it is. And eventually he figures out that their mother's name is Janet and um, that her, and her maiden, maiden name, name yes. is Jeffries. Okay. So now he's starting to figure out that it was a trap. It was a dirty trick. And this man who's been playing dirty tricks for most of his adult life and taking such pride in his ability to shape the world around him and shape society starts to realize that all of that started with another dirty trick. Um, so yeah. And, he, he, so go ahead. No, I was just going to note that um, the kids also tell Tomas that 
Janet died in a car accident a year and a half ago. So it's not like he can go talk to her and, and say like, Hey, why did you like, get involved in this weird plot to fake your murder. Um, right, or, or, or even 100% confirmed that it's the same Janet Jeffries. Like, it's just, right. there, there, there's just like, there's enough, there's enough that's ambivalent. He's certain, but there's enough ambivalence there. And one of the, ambi- one of the things that he wants to be sure of is whether or not Wheeler knew that he'd been set up. Um, so that's why he goes to Southworth. That's why he, and Southworth is very, is very clear. Like, no, that, that is not what, Wheeler, Wheeler would not have gone along with that. He would not have set that up. Um, that does not, he's not that kind of a person. Um, and also he's an old man, you know, don't do this to him, you know, don't confront him. So he doesn't, he does, however, confront Tupra. Um, and Tupra, my God, could someone be more dismissive of how they treat other people's lives? Um, it, it's, it's a remarkable scene in that, through every time you you encounter Tupra in in Marius's novels, he is in such control of himself, of the people around him, of the situation, and that holds here. But there's such a clinical aspect to his control over someone who he has used and in some ways abused um, for the last twenty years. Um, I mean, Tupra uses it, it says that it. We both have benefited. The, the the realm has benefited from you, and you've benefited from the realm. And Nevinson is like his eyes are practically bugging out of his head. Like I have benefited. You've had me hidden in the countryside for twelve years. Like what do you mean I've benefited from any of this? I loved, especially when Tupra mentions that they'd been giving um, Berta severance payments for the past um, twelve years while um, Tomas has been forcibly removed from her life and, and in exile, um, basically. Right. And, and also that, you know, they've been supporting um, Tomasa. So it's been a real strain in the state for for her to support both of them. Oh, and by the way, you started another family. Why would you think to do that? Like, all, like I mean, Tupra is such a fascinating character, but also like he, he is, some, he's described consistently as someone that like, you know, is in some ways almost instantly attractive in a very particular way, but he's also so repulsive in how he uses and discards people. Um, and-, and he basically, he basically tells Tomas, you know, um, you know, you're kind of burnt anyway, you know, we yeah. can't really, we can't really use you. So go along your way. Um, I accept your resignation. You can go back to, uh, to London for a while and then go to Madrid, but you damn well better keep your mouth shut. And if you do, we'll always take care of you. See you later. Right. right. And, but, but also before that, I mean, Nevinson puts to him, like, why did you do this? Like, why go to all this trouble? And, and again, it goes back to the malleability of the state. I mean, and this idea of a realm that they're defending, but a realm that is, in many ways, the laws of which are so conditional upon uh, upon what the powers that be or various powers within it um, need them to be. So, of course, they're able to manipulate circumstances such that he could be accused of this crime. And of course, if he had pushed back on it and taken taken his chances, the case would have fallen apart, and so on and so on. But Tuber says to Nevinson, like, you know, you are exceptional. 
Like you are a genius. You are one of a kind. There are very few people like you in this entire world. So of course we would go to whatever links we had to, to try and get a hold of you. Um, again, this idea of how remarkable Tom, Thomas Nevinson is, and yet how little actual agency he has uh, when it comes to his own life, this, this genius. And, and when Southworth sees Nevinson, he has, his hair is thinned. He's put on weight. He's got this gray beard and mustache. Um, he, his eyes have lost their spark, but that mouth, the mouth is still there. The mouth is still interesting. You know, the mouth is what allows him to say, like saying whatever voice and whatever accent, whatever dialect, whatever he needs to say to blend in, to earn people's trust. That's still, that's still a part of him. Um, I thought it was particular. I thought it was particularly audacious when Tupra says, "Well, um, you know, we didn't hold a gun to your head to make you sign up. If you would have just like, you know, not not given in to our suggestion, you would have seen soon enough that these these murder charges would have melted away like ice cream." He actually says that, um, you know, that there was no there there, that there was nothing to you know, convict you and put you into prison, but you know, you just hastily, you know, <laughs> agreed to come along with us, which we know that, um, the pressure on Tomas was, was pretty great at the time. And plus he was 21 years old. He was a very right. naive, innocent kid. Well, and also, I mean, what I, I mentioned earlier, like Tomas doesn't read people or at least he, he doesn't read people like Tupra and Wheeler well. Like he can't, he couldn't see through the BS. He couldn't see through the lie. He couldn't see how remarkably incongruous all, all of this is that, you know, he is offered a job in the secret service. He declines it. His, um, his lover is suddenly dead and he's being accused of the crime, but Oh, the way out is the secret service. Like when you step back, it seems like there are things to ask questions about. And of course, in, when you're inside of the house of cards, it probably looks pretty sturdy. Right. But um, he's not one to step too far outside of it, despite his claims to being able to shape and control the world around him and the importance of his actions. Um, so, yeah. so Tomas eventually makes his way back to Berta. And I guess, I guess the question that we're left with, you know, she's, she's not particularly, um, uh, 100% thrilled about him being back. In fact, he, he refuses to move back in. He, he gets an apartment very near so he can, he can try to reestablish a relationship with the kids and they do, you know, have sex every once in a while and they spend some time together, but you get this sense that it's a kind of, as not surprising after what's happened, kind of an uneasy uh, reuniting. And I guess that kind of sets us up pretty well for our next episode, Tom, to talk about or to kind of venture, I guess, as to what their life is going to be like together, Berta and Tomas, and, um, and what the sequel to Berta Isla, um, Thomas Stevenson is going to tell us about that life. Yeah, I'm curious to see how that how that plays out and how that works. Um, I mean, 
initially, in, in Tomas's version of things, he's excited to go home and to you know, reunite with his family. Um, I mean, he even chose not to marry Meg, the woman that he was with and had a child with in England, because he was married to Berta. Even if he was declared dead, he was married to her. Um, in some ways, that seems to be uh, Berta's opinion, too. But after he's back and after he's settling back in, there are moments where she notices the same dissatisfaction, the same distraction in him that she saw back when he was back from assignment. Um, the tension of not being out there anymore, maybe feeling bereft and lost. So yeah, I'm really curious to see. I'm curious to see what comes next after uh, after all this, as he reintegrates, as he returns. Um, and also, the, this last section is where the uh, the Dickens starts to uh, yes. re- rear its head. Some really, <laughs> some really remarkable quotes from Dickens um, that Basically. Berta is, is like reciting in her head. Um, Do you want to read some of them? Sure. Um, the first, the I mean, there are two specific quotes. So the first one that um, emerges is. Every human creature is destined to be a profound secret and mystery to every other creature. A solemn thought comes to me whenever I enter a great city by night, that every one of these dar- those darkly clustered houses and every room in every house contains its own secret, that every beating heart in the hundreds of thousands of breasts hidden there is, in some of its imaginings, a secret to the heart nearest it, the one that drowses and beats by its side. And there is in, in all of that something akin to awe. Um, I don't Which know what Dickens' gorgeous. work that that no comes idea. from. Yeah, I should have looked that up before we recorded. But I mean, I think it's interesting because it's in some ways. Again, back. I mean, I'm, I'm I know I'm kind of harping on this whole notion of the the protagonist or not. Um, but maybe I maybe to like maybe bring that to a little bit of a, of a close. Um, the last line of the novel is that is what usually happens to lives, which like mine and his, and like so many, many others simply exist and wait. And as that combines with the Dickens, I mean, it is that everyone is their own protagonist. Um, Everyone is also a background character in someone else's story. Um, And if, if Thomas Nevinson had not had called the bluff, these two would have simply lived a life in Madrid. They would have simply, I mean, other things would have happened to them, but this complicated separation and, you know, re reunion, everything that happened, all the conversations that took place that probed into who the other person is wouldn't have happened the same way. And, I, and they would, could have been background characters in another Maria's novel, but for that, that, that one instance, um, and ultimately, in some ways, I think it thrusts Berta into more of the role of the protagonist, the, the, the driver of the story, and Tomas much more into the person, that, the person that accompanies her along the way. Well, two points. Um, don't you think that Moraes intended Berta to be the protagonist? She's the, she's I- the, the title of the story. I think he did, but I also think that, um, especially with what he was doing with how he how he wrote the novel, that those shifts in perspective, that, um, and the fact that, I mean, he's writing this from the perspective of a woman. I mean, he he hasn't 
done that in the same, like not like this before. Um, women were usually, I mean, they were powerful, Im- impactful forces, but within the context of these male protagonists. Um, so in some ways, I think he's he's not exercising, but like drag pulling a pulling a female character in one of his novels to the forefront. Um, and especially against the backdrop of her partner or her husband, who is a spy, but she's the protagonist, not him. Um, I think there's an interesting, an interesting thing he's doing there. Well, I especially love the fact that the last word literally of the novel is wait, because Mm -hmm. to me, that is, that's just the very palpable feeling that you get reading this novel uh, particularly the two thirds of it that are from Berta's point of view, um, that you know this tension of just of just waiting, and she spends so much of her life waiting because every time he goes away, albeit it's never um, for twelve years until the last time, but it's long periods of time, and and he's gone a lot and she's got no idea where he is or when he's coming back. And, and really that just like we talked about Tomas not having any agency, she doesn't have any agency either because what is, what else is she going to do? But, but wait, I mean, yeah, I, you know, at whenever the Spanish law allows her, she could get remarried, but there's still this, this, shadow, you know, cast over her life, no matter what she does, that he very well might come back. But I mean, I think there's also the point though that she is choosing to wait. I mean, she's making the choice. She made the choice at a young age. This is who she was going to be with. And, you know, we mentioned that she did have lovers during the, after Tomas was gone and it was clear he may not ever come back. Um, but none of them stuck. And she, in many ways, she didn't want them to, to stick. And on top of that, I, I, she's teaching during this time. But her job is initially kind of suggested as very um, part-time adjacent to whatever Tomas is doing. And it it becomes she becomes more and more, her intellectual life comes more and more to the fore throughout this novel. Um, she's dwelling on... Um, Melville and Moby Dick um, on the morning that uh, Tomas reappears. Um, and this is not the first time that's come up. Um, so yes, her, I mean, her life is defined by the waiting, but it's also a life that I think she really in some ways takes greater control of because of the absence and because of, of who, Tom, who Tomas was, um, is, uh, and was in, in her life. I don't know. Um, I think she's she's obviously a lot of her life is going to be defined by the disappearance of her husband. But I think I think in ways that Tomas is not, she controls and defines her life for herself as well. Even though she never made the choice to wait for him. Really, I mean, yeah. it was it was a situation that was forced was thrust upon her. Well, she did make the choice. Like they they talk about that. I mean, she talks about that before to my, like, after the incident with the um, Irish, where they threaten her and Guillermo. Um, the day that Tomas is returning, 
she knows that when he comes finally is home because they wouldn't talk about it over the phone when he's finally home they're going to have the conversation um and in that conversation she's going to have a choice whether to leave him and leave all of this um or to stay and and to wait for him when he's gone and he puts it to her this as such in the conversation and she i mean she chooses to wait maybe not all the circumstances around the waiting, but she does make the choice very early on to wait. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, she does clearly make that choice and it's kind of presented to her, you know, do I want to put up with this the rest of my life? You know, uh-huh. having a husband like this. Um, but I also think that she probably, in making that choice to, yes, I'm, I'm in it uh, for good, she probably didn't anticipate that he could be gone for 12 years no, at a time. <laughs> it's interesting. And it will be really interesting to, to read and to discuss Thomas Nevinson because, um, well, it's going to be the last novel. I think that we, the last new novel that we get from Moraes, who, as we said, um, died last year, but um, it'll just be really interesting to see how he further develops and what he does with these two characters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to, to dig into it and, and then to, to talk about it. Um, it's a really, it's a really remarkable universe he generated over the course of his work. Um, and I think it's really, I find it interesting that these are the last two books that round it out and in some ways tie it even more closely together. I mean, having not read Thomas Nevinson yet, I, I assume that's the case, but just the reintroduction of Wheeler, Tupra's reemergence, uh, emergence Southworth, all of it. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think. And I mean, Laurie, there's so many things else we could have gone into with this one. We could have talked about how we could have talked about the fact that Berta was in college, uh, uh, you know, in the late '60s in Spain, and w- what that meant in terms of dealing with the government versus um, the world, the universe outside of the universe that is Oxford, um, that um, Tomas is inhabiting, and what that does to the two of them. I mean, his novels are so rich, so it's it's I've fun. Got, I've got a, a, a just weird thing that came up in my mind, but um, I was thinking because. Over the last, well, especially during COVID, and maybe I mentioned this previously, but we watched all of the uh, David Suchet, Hercule Poirot, uh, back mm. for Christie. It's like, I think, 137 episodes or something. Wouldn't it be so cool if someone made Javier Moraes's Peter Wheeler? And so Peter Wheeler would be in each episode, like Hercule Poirot, and not necessarily like, but but playing his character, but just having all of these different spinoffs from Peter Wheeler because um, he's so recurring in this in these books, and he's such a fascinating character. Absolutely, that'd be yeah. I mean, or even to use Wheeler, uh, much like. Um... Hitchcock in the background of these episodes, just sort of passing through. But, all, <laughs> but it's 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 he is he is the sun around which all the other planets are spinning, whether they realize it, whether they realize it or not. He yeah. is he is there somehow directing traffic, exerting gravitational waves. Absolutely, that'd be that'd be phenomenal. Well, it was super fun talking to you about Berta Isla, Tom. This was great, and um, I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, seeing how Tomas and uh, Berta get on with things moving forward.